0: Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Eat Drinkla, and Chips La. I just had their brown butter chicken rice. It is so good! The sauce is sweet but not too sweet, the chicken is tender and juicy, and the rice is steaming hot. Order yours today in your favorite food delivery app, they usually have promos, make sure you get them while they're on promo so you can order more itla my guest today is Brandon Wirakasuma. Brandon is a surfer and is the general manager for Southeast Asia at Wish Wish is one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did all right brand um Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind after um, this word I'm gonna say. Nice breaker. Okay. Mm. The first one is Michael Jordan. Greatness. That's right, man. Why is he great?
1: Uh, I think there's definitely a level of competitive spirit there that isn't around for a lot of other people, regardless of uh, what does that mean in terms of being nice to people. <laughs> um, but rather, I think it's a pursuit of excellence that a lot of people don't really quite ha- have and the energy and the dedication to do that. So, you know, when he, I think one of the comments in the last dance is like, you know, like, you know Jordan, like people could switch it off, off and on. Jordan was always on. So that pursuit of excellence was constantly there and he was constantly thinking and working to find ways to be better.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so impressive. I loved the last dance.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: All right. How about Larry Fink? Um, I think cerebral. Um obviously. So for context here, Nikki's trying to pulled me into my old job where, my first job where I worked at BlackRock as an analyst and Larry Fink for everyone who doesn't know is the CEO of that company. Um, so Larry Fink uh, typically uh, manages, he's the you know CEO and founder of the world's biggest asset manager and uh, what he does and I think what he does really well is uh, communicates specific insights and in analytics um, which is what BlackRock's uh, originally known for was they built a Uh, fixed income business uh, that was driven by risk management analytics. Um, And he's able to translate that into sales, Um, not necessarily performance on a, you know, an active investing side, but uh, they've definitely figured out how to use their analytics and scale to make very smart acquisitions, such as iShares and stuff. So I think when I think about Larry Think, I think he's a great salesman, uh, you know, very good manager. um, And, you know, generally speaking has the, um, you know, Media wrapped around him, uh, and a very good awareness of what's going on in the world, just given the amount of insights you get from managing more assets than any other institution in the world. Yeah, well, I definitely like
0: look up to him. Have you ever seen him in person?
1: so funny story is uh when i was an analyst i had to come in at 6 30 a lot in the morning so i think he was up the escalator and he was in his running shorts and he was very um you know sweaty because he ran from his house in park ave to the office which is also on park avenue uh, um, park avenue plaza for those of you who've been in new york um, so that was one time and I think the other time is uh, we usually have a Friday team meeting and we didn't know that he was in the room so we opened it up and I think he was talking to Tim Geithner at the time so that was a little awkward but other than that yeah and maybe once or twice in the elevator but I've never like personally said anything to him he'd be like he said like hi analyst how's it going whatever but generally speaking there's people are scared of Larry at BlackRock. <laughs>
0: Wow, you saw him in the same meeting room with Timothy
1: Geithner, the New York. Yeah, by accident.
0: Wow, that's like.
1: He wasn't at the Fed anymore. I think I think they were trying to get him to work at BlackRock at the time. Yeah, and if you look at like a lot of BlackRock's like current employees, I think the head of the uh, the old E Square in uh, the UK is like now on them the old head of the Swiss bank, um, some uh, undersecretary of the treasury, like they have a lot of old, like um, former high ranking government officials who work there just given that uh, they have a big advisory business and those type of connections tend to help probably with sales and stuff. So I would imagine <laughs> strategically speaking, it's, it's quite helpful.
0: Yeah, I saw your dog just now.
1: I just yeah, think we have a
0: second, second. There's two. There's uh, two other
1: dogs right <laughs> that you can't see that are actually right next to me. So awesome. it's uh, there's a lot of dogs in this room. There's three. <laughs> That's cool. All right, how about Drake? Drizzy? Drake started from the bottom. Now we're here.
0: Oh yeah, I can see that red. I I see you at the top right now.
1: I'm you. not at the top. I don't have Drake seven sixty seven. I'm not partying with Toronto Raptors and being obnoxious at basketball games.
0: <laughs> uh, does Drake uh, still do that? He, does he? Does he mess with um, the players? I don't. I don't think he's in the NBA level list. I would hope he's not. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you say, start from the bottom, and now we hear the top. Dope ass
1: music. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, there's a funny. I think. Uh, a funny like a troll tweet i think it was by T Boone Pickens he was like this private equity guy um and i think drake tweeted like you know this is so obnoxious cuz you are like these you know rich dudes and it's like oh yeah the first million's the hardest then this like private equity guy replies like yo try the first billion i'm like <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> well I think we know that uh, greatness and humility sometimes don't go hand in hand, but <laughs> yeah, I guess, no. I, I guess those are two interesting examples. What a legend. All right. Um, let's go to Lama questions. I want to know what you think of Bali. What do you think of Bali?
1: Uh, as, as in, what do you mean by that? Like it's First. a place.
0: Yeah, first impressions. I mean, like, it has so much uh, meaning to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad uh, is from here, so uh, you know, he he taught like, and we used to go here. Like, so you know, just for context, Nikki and I grew up together. We went to the same high school, starting from th- like school from third grade. Um, but you know, like a lot of people in Jakarta, like, are um, I like my parents were not from Jakarta. Like, my dad's um, half Balinese, half Chinese um and uh you know he grew up here so we would used to go back here for vacation and stuff um so there you know i think there's a lot of things related to like the food culture um that you know that that resonate with me so just for context he's asking this because i am also have been in bali for the past four months um uh, like i'm staying like my family as uh as, at my family's house right here so um you know i think that's that's why he's asking this question. But uh, I think in terms of Bali, what it really means to me is it's, uh, it's I think uh, it's an evolving place like the rest of the world, right? There's um, still a pretty strong sense of culture that goes on uh, within the local population here. So you see, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the ceremonies and, and whatnot, and they, they still hold that really closely. But like the rest of the world, it's evolving as you have outside influences come in. So for example, um, you know, there's a lot of foreigners coming in. So a lot of the values and stuff that people have here are kind of evolving around that uh, in the good and sometimes bad ways. So economically, it probably presents more opportunities for people in the short term. Uh, unfortunately, in the longer terms, things such as, you know, the beach, the cleanliness, like the beach, the rice paddies that you usually see are being plotted off and sold off for villas, for example, in certain areas. Um, so I don't think they've the there's they've really thought about that from a policy perspective, and what the value of having green spaces and open spaces and clean spaces is uh, in the long term. I think you know I think in general, uh, Hong Kong, for example, um, has done it pretty well. Uh, you know, I think there's a balance there, right? Because one of the reasons why Hong Kong has so much green is that they limit the n- number of Ah, uh, supply of land that people can build on, which really? obviously, yeah. So, so Hong Kong's like ninety percent green, right? And I mean, it's great for the property, like the Lee Li Shings of the world, right? Because the property prices go up. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the reason. The, there's also the, the the counterbalance of inequality, right? Because property is so expensive, and if you know you go to, if you go to a traditional Hong Kong, like you know, an average middle class person in Hong Kong's apartment, or even someone with a little bit of money, they're like there's some pretty small apartments. Um, so there's a trade off there, right? I think Bali, there's enough room, especially with tourism. Uh, you know, there, there should be certain areas that are developed and there's certain, certain areas and traditions that are preserved. And by doing that, I mean, sure, you lose out on the easy money, but there's, you know, land, for example, price elasticity of land becomes more inelastic. So your, the property values that are available are, are, are more expensive. You can use it through a system of taxation, uh, sorry about the dogs. Um, you can use a system of taxation where you can redistribute um, sales in terms of property sales to the local um, community to redevelop things in uh, an eco-friendly and sustainable way. So, uh, I, yeah, there's a lot of feelings about Bali. There's some mixed feelings, personal feelings. It's, uh, but, you know, I think like anywhere, it's uh Uh, You do have, uh, especially in a lot of places in Asia where, you know, capitalism, Western values and whatnot come into play with um, traditions. And I think they're in nature and ultimately as all of us everywhere need to figure out is how do we manage and balance out these two uh, for the longer term.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think we gotta like be aware of what it could, economic development is doing to uh, like our society and it's 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 um the pressures of, of of that kind of development can really like stop certain things and i think um, um one, one should be um like aware of that and like what i like about bali is, is green the, the nature and and for now and like the waves and, and ice. Like you said, it's out, let's hope that um, that that stays like that for you know uh, as long as possible. Um, yeah, I love Bali as well. Okay, um, that was a nice tangent about Bali and its uh, effect, and I, I mean and, and its um uh, where it's going. Uh, I want to know uh, if you're stuck in a desert island, uh, what would you bring?
1: How many things? This' one. Is it because like a lap, like a laptop with an internet connection, like or a phone? Is that fine? Like, is it, or is it there no anything. internet? It be
0: anything. Like, why would you bring what you want to bring?
1: Um, I think like any kind of communication form would be probably be the most important. Uh, one is because if you're stuck in a lonely island and remote island. Um, having access to ideas and resources in other people are, are probably extremely important towards your mental health, but if that isn't an option, uh, I'd probably bring like a journal to at least, you know, be able to write down ideas, um, stay sane, uh, iterate on things that, you know, for survival, um, That that's probably what I'd do. Yeah, just just
0: to be clear, I won't survive in a desert island.
1: <laughs> I don't no, know. I don't think no, most like, people do. I
0: don't know what I'll bring, like, but... Um, for me i think being a kindle would be awesome don't know how long um it'll last but like having books yeah would be great. okay Um, what friends character um are you and and why
1: i don't watch that much friends so i don't, <laughs> don't really know how to answer this okay um, okay.
0: um well, let's let it cross prob- there's, there's
1: chandler
0: and i forgot the other guy
1: ross joey joey
0: Joey after not Joey upcha.:
1: Yeah, Ross Chandler um, and Joey. Well, I, I could be a Rachel
0: too.: <laughs> Rachels <laughs> is Ross's um, girlfriend, right? I,
1: I, yeah. Um, I, I actually don't know anymore. Rachel. I haven't watched the show in so long. Yeah: um, Yeah.
0: All right. so I think that would be a good breaker for a lot of people watch friends.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I know, I used to, but it's been like so I, I can't remember the subtleties, to be honest all
0: right okay um if a drink can describe you what would that be
1: oh boy i think probably say like a mojito um you know it's uh it's sweet it's sour it's fun um i like being outdoors you go you usually have a mojito on the beach um you know some beautiful views and that's generally what i think is is you know would describe me you know it's like it's it's different. It's there's all there's a lot of contrast there and it's it you relate it with something that's fun and energetic. I would hope that would be described me, but you know that, that, that would be my, my dream. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: For sure. Cool. That was a great icebreaker that um
0: all right, so let's let's go back to your childhood. Um tell us where did you grow up? Sorry. Um where did you grow up and um where what did you do and um what was your childhood like?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know where I grew up. So uh, Nikki and I, for everyone here, um, we, we grew up together um, for most part. Um, I think for the first, first few years of my life, I lived two years in Indo, I was born in Jakarta, and uh, moved to the States for two years. My, my dad was getting his master's in Montana where my um, mom's side of the family's from, then moved back then have been, uh, you know, we like when it was in the same school from kindergarten to, to graduating high school, uh, it was a fun experience. I think it was, uh, you know, uh, you get to, you get some literally lifelong friends at this point, um, if I think about it, like some of our friends I've known for over 25, 27 years um, at this point, which is kind of wild because that's by far, you know, vast majority of my lifetime. Um, so that 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 was really good and just having the same community and knowing the same people it's it's cool because you know you see them and some of them are in fact very successful people now and you know you like a lot you see like people like wow this person's so oppressive they're like a little nervous to meet them and you, you know you know you know they're that little kid in third grade and whatever you you guys used to joke around with or have fun with so um yeah i think that's that's the kind of community we grew up in um and everyone's still like pretty like and it's kind of nice that even if you haven't seen people in like ten years, just strike up a conversation. You have that common bond.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel that way sometimes too. You know, when we see other people are like more successful, I'm like, Fuck, what, what, what the hell have been doing in the last twenty years? You know what I mean? Like, what, where have
1: I been and stuff?
0: But I guess that's. Close. But at, at the heart of it,
1: they're still the same. Like you know, they're still they still. I mean, they've obviously changed. Like some people have obviously changed and improved. Like you know, some of their skill sets and stuff. But I think at, at the heart of it, like everyone's just still the, the same good person that they were as a kid. And you still see those like underlying traits and values and it's, it's really, it's just cool to see, right? Because like, you know, like they have, uh, they, they've worked so hard to achieve what they've done, but they're still the same person, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. 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 What were your favorite things to do when you were a child and growing up?
1: Uh, I mean, you touched on basketball, right? I loved playing basketball growing up. Um, it was uh, probably a little obsessive at a time. So I'd like go to school 30 minutes early, shoot hoops, shoot hoops at lunchtime, shoot hoops after school. Um, I think I remember one of, like, one of my birthday gifts was getting the first like, pair of LeBron shoes, the LeBron jersey when he was a rookie in, in, in Cleveland, uh, the Air Zoom Generations if you guys, for those in the know, um, so I had the first, first pair of shoes that came out from him and that was really awesome. Uh, my parents like knew that I loved basketball. Um, so basketball was definitely like probably my favorite thing to do growing up. Uh, otherwise I, I generally like sports, um, growing up also, also had some interesting technology. So just looking at computers, I think I built like a a desktop at one point in time, I think when eighth or eighth or ninth grade, uh, was like a heading for like, you know, just big desktop uh, with a cooler, um, maybe at most 256 megabytes of RAM, which you think about now is like a a very, very small amount. Um, So there's always an interest in computers there and technology. Um, And my parents also subscribed to Newsweek growing up and National Geographic. So uh, I used to really, really like reading nonfiction growing up as well. So it's a combination of kind of being a semi jock and, and a nerd um, at the same time.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And you
0: have an older sister, was she also like um, like,
1: gifted
0: and like you
1: are? I wouldn't say gifted, right? I think our parents really forced the idea of uh, being well-balanced and, and working hard to achieve what you need to do. Um so I I, I don't think there is any I don't think I think there are certain people who are gifted. I think um I don't think either of us would view ourselves as particularly gifted in anything. It's just that we uh had we're very fortunate to have parents who um invested the time to give us a broad world outlook and try a lot of opportunities to do things. And I guess unlike a lot of parents who, you know, if you like, you tried something, you didn't enjoy, like it. Okay, you don't need to do it anymore. Like our parents would force us to continue to stick with it. So, um, which is good um, because I think over time you you develop um, some kind of grit and mental toughness through doing that. Um, yeah. So that's that's I think you know I my, yeah my sister and I had pretty similar experiences and stuff in that way. Um, she's probably much better at music, but I also. I just didn't want really long. I so one funny story is like growing up we used to have a timer in terms of like how long we needed to practice and I used to, have to play cello you could move the timer shorter so I would always move it by 20 minutes shorter so I, would, I was supposed to practice for 40 minutes only usually practice for 20. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow so yeah. you have like a, a sibling that is also as like determined as you and um, also being like Motivated by parents. It reminds me of the book, Grit. You said Grit, right, of, of, by Angela Lee Duckworth, of the kind of parenting that teaches the kids to, to persevere. Um, can you give us examples of um, how your parents did that? I think it's fascinating.
1: Um, I think, well, there's always like, I think there's always high expectations, right? So we usually forget a report card, even if you have good grades. It was never like, I, and you know sorry like sorry for my parents for saying this but it was never like oh wow like oh yeah that's awesome well done it's like hey why'd you get a bad grade <laughs> they look at your one grad grade and like what do you need to do to get better at this and just like come on <laughs> I worked so hard for everything else <laughs> like um so I think there's always like uh an expectation that you can do better uh mm. which which is I think good and bad um at times so um and uh, just having a sibling, right? You know, um, you also have a brother. There's definitely competitive spirits between the two of you. Um, I, as with any siblings, right? I don't know. I know very few siblings who have no competition amongst each other. Um, mm. So I think that also helps helps with um, with grit or, or whatnot. Um, but I think, and for me, at least, um, I always, like, Uh, If I really enjoyed something as a kid, uh, I would just, I I don't know, maybe this is just my personality too, is that uh, once I get caught up into something, I can spend hours and hours doing it and just like kind of lose track of time. So, um, you know, uh, as my parents would tell, like, and this is examples that they gave me because I don't really remember things when I was three, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't like, want to leave the house if I was playing with a Lego set, um, they could just set me aside and give me, like, a Lego set or, like, a set of, like, boxes or something to build, and I could spend hours and hours doing that. Um, So I think that's something that, like, I enjoyed, um, is just being really stimulated and involved and focused on a couple of things at a time. Uh, I don't know, like, if that's innate. I don't know if that was trained, but it's just kind of something that's uh, managed to keep up pretty well
0: yeah for sure that's really cool man um and how you studied i i i forgot what you studied in in Carnegie Mellon what 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 did you study i studied economics economics yeah why economics man you 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 know you high performer in in high school in sports and um gotten to a great school and how do you find about well, I couldn't be a basketball player, so you
1: know that's that's. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if I have a te- height in the athleticism to be a basketball player, then sure. Um, I'm not well, saying that, me, you know. To, to, well, to be fair, the U.S. has, well, the, you know, like the average, like,
0: I don't know, of the physical, like, I, I didn't know you were considering seriously, but like, you know. No, I, ne- I, I
1: never did. Um, I think the moment I stopped growing, I was like, this is never happening. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty early on, so don't, don't worry, no. No, I never considered doing that. I, I think just, um, okay, but yeah, in terms of why economics, uh, I think it's a combination of a, a couple of things. So there's, it's very relevant in terms of social sciences, right? So understanding the way that the world is, the w- way the world runs and, um, re- and building models around that. Um, so what I enjoy is that it's specifically, it's a framework in terms of how and why people do things, right, and how we make choices. Um, and you can do that on a, a very broad level, such as macroeconomics, where you look at interest rates and people's propensity to save and people's propensity to invest. Uh, or you can go to microeconomics, uh, where you, know, like you decide between buying A versus B, why certain products or certain companies do better than others. Uh, how does a monopoly affect um, you know, the, the general pricing levels and price competition that exists? Uh, then there 's I think more recently behavioral economics i think is really where things are beginning to go is where you do controlled uh, randomized controlled studies where you give uh, people a set of conditions and you see how they would behave so for example if uh, you know um, we were to if if um, this is this is uh, you know if you were to watch like one hypothetical example could be um and one thing that's really quite interesting, and this might not necessarily be economics, but um, they they did a test, I think, um, may, I can't remember who exactly did this, but in one case they assigned someone as a leader um, and they looked at their compens. and, you know, they were able to choose how they would compensate themselves. And the person who that they assigned as a leader would uh, compensate himself a lot higher than the rest of the group because they, you know, he was implied that you were special and you had these special privileges. Whereas in another case, um, you know, there was no one assigned as a leader, then the distribution of wealth that was shared amongst the compensation pool was a lot more equitable. I think if you go to Michael Lewis's, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, uh, graduation speech at Princeton, um, you know, he gave a commencement speech there, I think, for their undergraduates. He mentions this particular example. So you know, in a lot of ways, right? And there's another uh, example. Maybe this was from Grit. I can't remember which book this was, but uh, there was like this, um, they gave these kids a, a set of straws and sticks and who could build the highest tower. And they compared, compared that uh, with Harvard MBAs who did the same exercise. And the kids could build a much better structure even though they're five years old. Because what was happening was that the, the uh, Harvard MBAs, they were trying to rank themselves figure their, their position in society. So they so they were so invested in themselves versus uh, versus the outcome of the team that the results were a lot poorer. So, you know, five-year-olds, you can learn a lot from five-year-olds. And I think what happens and what's interesting about economics here, right, is that um, you, once you discover incentive structures and behavior and why people do things, in uh, particular with behavioral economics, you know, I think there's a lot we can develop in terms of nudges and social changes that we might not have previously been aware of. And you can do this through through running tests, right? So you can have, for example, you have one village in Java and another village in Java that's like maybe like 100 kilometers away, very similar sizes, income distribution and whatnot. You give one of them specific incentives, you give another one no incentives and you see how they perform over time.
0: Yeah. I like economics because one of my professors told me that it's a balance between
1: um, resources,
0: in in particular, what she said was, you're trying to optimize resources to maximize output or something.
1: Yeah, that's product. That's uh, yeah, a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off, right? And you're trying to maximize productivity. Solo growth model, yeah. <laughs> capital, labor, plus uh, factor productivity growth. Exactly, and you know, it sounds fun. But um,
0: you know, other than um, studies. Uh, I know you told me that you had fun in college. Um, um, you joined a, a fraternity right for those who don't know whats a, what's a, what is a fraternity and, um, It's a
1: social organization uh-huh. uh, mainly to hang out with friends and right. to uh, party effectively
0: <laughs> but not every school in the states uh, have most a-
1: schools in the states have have fraternities though I think okay or certain schools have like well, for example, I think certain schools have like dining clubs or finals clubs, right? If you go to like Harvard or whatever that is, I, um, so it's a similar concept of where you find like-minded people and you do things. Do things.
0: Okay, that sounds a uh, very uh, um, generic, uh,
1: Brandon. Would so, say? so one thing, uh, one example, right? And this is a a, a good PC version example. Uh, is um, uh, we had this thing called Spring Carnival where you would build these giant plywood structures, and you know they'd be like um, they'd be like fun shows, right? So one thing we did was we built a giant Titanic structure. There was a game inside, um, and it was just fun for like you know to to see and to build. Um, so um, uh, I was just read a book by David Kelly and his brother. I can't remember his brother's name, but David Kelly, for example, is the founder of IDEO uh, and, uh, the Stanford design school, uh, the D school at Stanford. Um, so, you know, very prominent person in design based thinking. Um, but he, he mentioned that like, he learned the value of teamwork from building these plywood structures, right. With his fraternity at, at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> so, you know, we did spend a lot of time wow. doing this. I probably skipped, skipped two to three weeks of class. Um, but it was just fun. And I think like, you know, you have people who are from engineering and architects and, you know, business and worker bees and whatnot. And we all find ways to, to and design and everyone finds creative ways together to, to build you know, these, some of these plywood structures. So um, that's, those are some of the things that you do when you're in a fraternity in Carnegie Mellon.
0: No, of course. I mean, one other aspect of fraternity is the minimum aspect. There, there's a barrier to entry, right? Like certain grades, you need to-, you need to No.
1: Usually the barrier to entry, and for most fraternities, ours didn't do, is pledging. Um, So pledging is, um, you know, a process where you have to prove your worth. Um, I think it's kind of a stupid um, thing, right, because a lot of that involves involves hazing and bullying. That's really quite detrimental towards people's self-worth. And, you know, if you look at a lot of stories and stuff, like a lot of kids have actually died from bad kind of hazing and pledging processes. So... Um, that's a very like traditional thing like you'd see in like Van Wilder or Animal House Uh, I don't we didn't really do that and honestly I probably wouldn't sign up uh, just because I think it's really really quite degrading towards um, you know uh, the way that they treat people and stuff.
0: So would you say you uh, hang out more with your fraternity friends or or it's the same?
1: Um, As in like in college? In college socialize yeah for sure yeah yeah absolutely right it's like you know you have your like crew and stuff uh you yeah, obviously I had friends outside like i played club volleyball and was involved in a couple other things but um yeah i think like socialize it made sense right because like you join then you know you have people you meet and you're like yo let's join this organization and you know it's it's kind of like the thing where uh, you tend to hang out with people and they bring in their own friends and and whatnot and for us it was um a lot of us played volleyball or or stuff um so yeah, I think it was just generally speaking a good atmosphere to to meet a lot of friends and i'm still in touch with a lot of them today um so yeah it's it's a it's nice having that network of friends and you build connections over time um so uh, yeah, I thought I thought I thought it was. Um, I I know fraternities nowadays get a lot of bad rap um, especially with a lot of of what's going on, and deservedly so. Um, but there's also a lot of value there in building a community and uh, a, a circle of trusted friends that you have uh, for a very long time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and what's your fraternity?
1: Uh, Sigma Phi Epsilon.
0: Great. Great. and they have. The same fraternities also in other schools I mean yeah
1: um, I think nationally we're like the second biggest uh, like Greek organization the second or third so it's it's a pretty common one yeah but it's different chapters right so and I think it it, like the culture of each differs vastly by school so you know
0: yeah uh, can internationals join international students yeah yeah,
1: Yeah. I was my best friend who in the fraternity was Greek English so you know yeah, it doesn't really matter.
0: Okay, yeah. great. All right, all right, Ben, um, um, let's uh, uh, skip over uh, a few things to go to Wall Street, right? You work for BlackRock, right? And how was it, was it difficult to get a job at BlackRock? Tell us about that.
1: Uh, it was definitely difficult, especially at the time I was, uh, I think I got my internship offer in April, 2010. Uh, which was very shortly after the 2008 cri- financial crisis. So Wall Street hiring had probably gone in half half for new analysts and people entering the um, financial services in- industry. Um, so it was it was quite difficult. Um, and you know, I think Wall Street is kind of an el- generally speaking, kind of an elitist place to begin with. So you know, they will only recruit from certain schools and whatnot. Um, I think I don't like. Usually that's Ivy League schools, even like going to Carnegie Mellon, it's not like a, it's not like a, a top, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we is necessarily a target school as much as, say, like if you went to Harvard, Penn, uh, Princeton, um, Yale. So, you know, that, that, I think that was a bit difficult. I was very fortunate to get that position. Uh, the thing is, like, once you get in, it's like yeah, there's a bunch of smart people and stuff um but you know you're not necessarily better or worse than them it just depends on how hard you work and and whatnot Um, and just keeping but you do have to keep an open mind that you know like you you have to give yourself that self-confidence to be like i i deserve to be here uh you know it's not just like i'm uh uh you know it's like i got lucky or whatever like you you you've made it past the door and then you can do the best you can do
0: yeah and you know, you, you said you're um, as an international working in Wall Street. You know, there must be uh, something about your. There's a lot of international people on Wall Street, though.
1: On, honestly, like it's uh, like I don't like. Well, if you think about like the, the in the U.S., right? The international, like uh, in terms of STEM, like science, technology, um, engineering, engineering, math, engineering, math, right? Um, like a lot of those students who studies STEM degrees are, um, you know, international students. Whether that's for, like, that's predominantly from China and India. Um, so even just looking at like the team I worked on specifically, and just like the general an- analyst class that I came in with, there's a lot of people from China, India, um, and whatnot. Um, a lot of, interestingly, a lot on Wall Street, or you'll notice a lot of the programmers or quants are from Eastern European countries too. So, you know, it's a pretty, in that sense, it's pretty diverse. I think on the sales side, uh, the upper management side, the investment banking side, it's less so. But if you're in a more like technical field, it, it's, there's probably a little more diversity there, um, at least from an international perspective. I don't, I'm not speaking for things like people of color and whatnot. I, I think that that's, that's a whole different, separate issue. But from Wall Street hiring international people, at least if you're, you know, um, of East Asian or South Asian descent, not not so much Southeast Asian. There there weren't very many of us, but you know, uh, if you're like Chinese or Indian, uh, usually or Korean or whatever, it's usually pretty quite common.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned it was hard to get into finance, and but why did you look into finance?
1: Uh, you know, I thought, I think even today it's like a really interesting field, right? Um, I think there's a lot. A lot of it's related to to world events and specific um, knowledge domain that I think is really interesting. Right. So, um, whether that's specific public policies, whether that's the way that tax rates are affected. Um, if you're, you know, a growth te- growth technology company, what type of things are you offering the world? So, like, why? Like, if you look at a company like Tesla, I remember Tesla IPOed for ideas. Um, And I think that that aspect of Wall Street is very, very interesting. Uh, Also, a lot of Wall Street became very um, quantitative and systematic, say, the late 80s and early 90s, and it continues to do today, right? So, like, they brought uh, about a lot of, like, physics, scientific methods into, um, you know, the way that they, they try to analyze markets and stocks. Um, so, you know, that you'll see that you were, you know, I think that's the baseline in terms of like analytics and quantitative science on, on Wall Street's also, uh, grown a lot. So there's a lot of data and a lot of interesting data to, to analyze. Um, but overall, I think what's really interesting about finance, uh, and, and pers- like, not, not even like whether that's, you know, public finances or personal finances, is a lot of people just don't know how to manage them. I think one thing, uh, that. Society can do better is to make financial types of um, guidance and education mandatory in a lot of schools. So, for example, right, like one of our helpers here, um, I think she like borrowed uh, for a bike, like she made a, uh, uh, she made a, she took out a loan to buy her bike. Um, we didn't know about this, but the interest rate was like 50% a- on an annualized basis. And we're like, this is crazy. Like, you know, like this is a terrible financial decision. You're going to end up paying so much in interest that, that you know like the bike is worth say like 100 but you will pay six by the time your loan is done you'll pay 60 to 70 percent more because of interest right and i think people don't realize that at times and um you know governments and stuff need to not only drive awareness in terms of when people are borrowing but people need to be aware of things like compounding interest uh inflation savings um that are you know extremely important because their well-being is so impacted by these things.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hey, I kind of lost you there um after um you said the IPO of Tesla up until you said the overall view of finance. Could you wrap up what what um, Oh, I was just saying that like I remember like I, I was yeah. asking you
1: why the why yeah, I think like, uh, why is that like a lot of ideas, right? So for example, like 10 years ago, if you thought electric cars and electric car, like, like electrification of vehicles was an interesting idea, then that would have been a tremendous investment, right? If you put, invested in Tesla um, yeah. as an example. Um, so I think the, the, what's interesting about Wall Street is the exchange of ideas, the exchange of um, thoughts, um, thinking about the future um, and how we uh, frame policies and how policies affect, um, you know, people's finance, like fi- like, finances, companies' finances, and personal finances, and it all like you know, it's all it all it all drives together. Um, yeah, I remember um,
0: one of the highlights of my my um, career was when I took a leave. Uh, I was in Bintan, and the Facebook IPO was happening. Um, like it was such a big,
1: yeah. Way to go, Morgan you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> On that, yeah, that was that was a shamble. But um, it was like a company that was, you know, at the at the center of every teenager's lives and every college kid's lives, because it was happening. I remember uh, when we were in high school, senior year playing with Facebook for the first time was when we did our IB exams. It was, yeah. like, that was so fun. But speaking of Facebook, you worked for Facebook, the tech giant. How did you go from BlackRock to Facebook?
1: Um, I applied online and I started off with a contract. Oh, So I actually had applied, I think six months before as a data scientist and made it through a few rounds, but didn't didn't get an offer at the time. Um, but I'd always wanted to work there. I think, like, I, I think the technology industry, data science in particular was very exciting for me. Um, so I started there, Facebook as a contractor. So it wasn't even a full time employee. I took a pretty massive pay cut at the time too. So it was like, you know, like, is this the right idea? <laughs> what am I doing um, and whatnot? Um, but I think overall, um, yeah, like, and, but I thought, you know, this is the way that the world is going. Uh, we're gonna, you know, tech companies are going and platforms are really gonna start um, taking over um, our our daily lives. Uh, I even wrote down in an email. I looked back a few months ago for in in March 2014 in terms of why I'm doing this. Um, and I think a couple of predictions were the world's gonna be more and more mobile. Um, there's gonna be more time spent on videos online um as well as um network effects so once like facebook acquired instagram and whatsapp they're really going to have this tremendous network effect that they can use to help eventually monetize that that those businesses uh, they haven't monetized whatsapp but they're monetizing instagram at a tremendous rate uh so i i wrote that down and i was like yeah you know like this is way way more exciting than working at blackrock where it's fairly it's very established um there's not a Enough room for growth, right? Like, I think at the time, BlackRock's revenue was growing at 5% year over year. Our specific division with a growth area and it was growing at 14% year over year, whereas Facebook in Asia Pacific at the time was growing at 50, 60, 70% year over year. Um, so, you know, with that kind of like company growth, you get hiring, you get opportunities, you get new insights. You like, it was, it was incredible. So I was like, yeah, you know, like, I want to be on a rocket ship. I don't want to be at some stoic, very well paying and comfortable job. I want to be at a place where I can learn and, and accelerate my career.
0: Yeah. So when you entered Facebook, how big was Facebook, and and right now, like uh, where's it at?
1: Yeah, I think when I entered, overall globally, they did about eight billion dollars, seven and a half billion dollars in, in revenue. Uh, I compared that to BlackRock at the time, which did about twelve billion in revenue. Um, and um, and I think that when I joined the Singapore office in Facebook, there was about 140 people um and the, that compares to facebook now it's almost 10x in terms of revenue versus six years ago so facebook's i think did 60 65 billion in revenue last year um and the singapore office now is i think 1500 or 2000 people so it's 10x uh in six years um I, I haven't been there for three years but that's that's my latest understanding of, of what it is like there yeah. so that's growth right if you want to talk about it <laughs> Yeah.
0: yeah for sure well, I remember when you took me to the Facebook office in Singapore, it was like the best office I've ever been. to. The views, the cafes, the tables, the chairs. I, I remember the standing up chairs. First time I see those things. And yeah. you were convincing me that oh, this is super productive, this is helpful. Was that helpful, Brad? The standing, The standing desk?
1: Standing desk? Yeah, I bought one at home. <laughs>
0: how oh, really jakarta, right
1: now? Jakarta. Yeah. I, have one, I have one i have one in jakarta it's in jakarta unfortunately i wish you could ship it here it's so nice um it's a worthwhile investment
0: okay yeah cool that's was, that was awesome mm. all right ben. after facebook you moved to another division in facebook which was taking over the world you know instagram and yeah how did that go, man? How did that go? How did you find that job
1: and I, I hated that job. <laughs> um, honestly, I thought it was like an interesting time to like switch over career-wise in terms of like, I wanted to learn new things. Wanted to see what it's like in Silicon Valley and stuff. Then I got there and I absolutely hated it. Um, yeah. um, so I think why I moved is I was, uh, I thought, you know, just looking at the trends, like Instagram was definitely the way to go um especially because i think within a month i got two weeks of of going there they launched instagram stories and that thing based like everyone was so worried about snapchat then they launched this product stories and bam every every single metric moved upwards it was incredible um so they they managed to do like effectively like an internal turnaround and like killed off a competitor um or a lot of the momentum that snapchat had
0: Wow! Wait, wait—that's so exciting. So, 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 you were there when they launched Instagram Story, and um, it basically um uh, launched. The well, content. I
1: was like a week into there, um, and so I already had, like I already had tested out some of the beta, feed, like the beta ones. So I didn't really—I think there was one other person of stories I could see. So it was just like one, one, one like circle, and everything else was blank. And you could post yourself, but I didn't, like I didn't really know that many people were on Instagram at the time. So I was like, "Hey, yeah, nice story." Response. Um, so I think they launched it. Uh, at uh, uh, I, I remember there was like the, there. So every Friday there was a meeting with uh, the Q and A with uh, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, uh, who are the founders. Um, so anyone in that building or who was working on those type of projects could show up. Mm. Um, and they they had literally like I think my first meeting is they had just launched it. So they we were talking about like. How we're seeing this, this like the engagement is off the roofs, uh, blah, blah, blah. We have X number of da- daily active, like millions of daily active users already. We've never seen growth like this. And yeah, it was a tremendous, like, I think the, the the adoption of that product was like absolutely incredible. And if you look at Instagram today, like they've, like that was, I think that was a big turning point in, in that, that product and that, that, you know, that company.
0: I see well what would what suggestion would you give to people who probably were in your shoes who, who are surprised at uh, their job what what su- what advice would you give them like surprised like dislike their job i guess yes in one, one way like um because you mentioned that you know you, and you didn't you know you, you were you had did you have an expectation and and how did you Deal
1: with it yeah and- my expectation was I thought like I would be a lot more involved in projects and stuff uh, I think the team I was on specifically was quite limiting um like management wise and stuff there is just like a very dry and not very like it, I, going back to the like I like not grip but said by uh I can't remember this by um but that's like, there, it wasn't a very like growth mindset type of um, org within Facebook. It was very much like, you know, you have to do it this way, you know, like we're going to like, you know, you can have really interesting ideas You come up with interesting analysis. But if your fonts, like it's like effectively everyone on that team used to come from Morgan Stanley. So they had a very banker mentality in terms of how things had to be. So it's like you had to be in the office from... Uh, you know nine to seven every day Uh, you needed specific formats and fonts Uh, whereas other like i would come from another team on Facebook where it's like you know um, like the the presentation and stuff doesn't matter as long as the ideas and the numbers matter more so uh, I didn't I I really just wasn't a good fit for me now that looking back at it Um, I think what's interesting is like my VP at the time or like my boss's boss was like, yeah, I don't think he's gonna like it. And I was like, yeah, I should have listened to you. Um, but uh, so I think in terms of advice, one thing I would do is uh, ask around and try to get honest feedback from people on those teams. Um, Cause you know, at, when you're interviewing and stuff of course they're gonna tell you that they like it, it's part of their job, et cetera. Um, but try to get another source and get, get like a real human conversation. Uh, another thing is if you don't, if you have, um, if you really don't like a job, like start looking for other options. You know, you always have that, op- like that, that ability to to leave and to not do it. Um, I know, like again, again, this is a very privileged view, right? Of um, you have the option to quit, and I know some people might have bills and stuff that they might not be able to. So, but you should at least look for something else or try to make changes as fast as possible. Um, and ultimately I think it's a gut feeling like, you know, if you're hesitant about it, if you know that things aren't working out, like, uh, it's just, I guess the job you spend so much time on your job, right? It's kind of like a relationship. If, uh, you're not feeling it, um, you can try for a bit, but if, if you deep down, you know, it's not for you, then, then try to do whatever you can to make it better and leave.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How long were you, uh, in Facebook, Instagram for
1: uh, like eight months, eight, nine months. Yeah. Okay. Not that long. I really didn't like it. Wow. Well,
0: how did you find your next job?
1: Uh, Yeah. So I think, um, so currently I work for this company called Wish. Uh, we're a e-commerce platform um, that's based out of San Francisco. And I, I um, I help out with um, some projects related to Southeast Asia. Um, so I found out the job, um, Wish was a very prominent Facebook advertiser. Um, there's certain Facebook groups you can find about Wish that have some interesting content on there. Um, but in general, I think, you know, I, I we saw like, I I was looking at the advertiser and like, you know, they were spending massive, massive amounts of money and like, they were spending way more in excess of what they've ever raised. So I was like, you know, they, they probably have a decent business model here. Um, and, you know, I figured I, I did some simple math. I looked at all their Facebook spend over time, compared it to um, how much money they'd raised. and I'm like, okay, they have a business model here, right? They've they've spent more on ads than they have, than they raised at the time. So like there's there's some money coming in. It looks like they're, they're able to do it. Um, there, there's, sp- their the way that they invest in ads and the way that they do ads were unlike anything any company had ever attempted before on Facebook. So I was like, yeah, there's some there's probably some things that you know like I think they get it in terms of like um, user acquisition, uh, retargeting, and digital marketing. Um, so I was like extremely impressed by that. I know a lot of like a lot of people at the time were quite skeptical because they're like, oh yeah, th- like these guys are just like another hot beastie. Like the company that just spends money to acquire without any kind of unit economics. but uh, um, I you know, upon realizing we're like joining was like that's definitely not the case. Like we're very quite very, very like rigorous about our um, acquisition process. Wow, what a
0: discovery. I mean, I mean I'm over generalizing this and and feel free to jump in. So you were uh, working in. Facebook,
1: Instagram, and you found out about- Well, no, I, everyone, if you, work, if you work on ads, if you work on ads at Facebook or like anything related to like the ads ecosystem, like everyone knows what Wish is um, just because of the um, size and scale of, of, the, of our operations in terms of how we run ads. Um, so it was, it's a well-known, known, like I know Wish isn't necessarily like a household name in a lot of places, Um, but I think within, if you're on the ad side of visit uh, of the Facebook business, like if you hear about context logic, which is our like holding company, like you generally like it's, it's pretty, you know, like it's pretty well known that we're a, a, um, you know, a a relatively sizable player in the, in the Facebook ads industry. Cool. Wow. All right. So, um, um, when did you, you,
0: when did you enter with? When did you start at,
1: at, at Wish? May thirty first,
0: twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Wow. Yeah. Um, a lot has happened in three in, in in three years, and Wish has grown exponentially, raised money, right? But as as yourself professionally, you've also like been promoted and stuff. How, can you tell us like your personal experience, um, your career at Wish? What has it been like?
1: Um, yeah, it's been interesting. So I originally started off on like the data um, team is like a data scientist focused on our, our logistics side of the business. Um, so for, for context here, um, you know we um, have, like we do we ship about two to three million orders a day globally. Um, maybe th- th- two to four. I think that's what we publicly like. That's is what we publicly announced. Um, so there's there's that range of of shipments. And uh, that we really didn't have good ways of tracking in terms of our volume, in terms of what carriers we're using. So my my initial job was to help um, just build systems to help and pipelines to help understand what was going on. Hello, sorry, hey Ben. Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, cool. You- where, 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 where what was the last thing you heard?
0: Uh, you were building out the logistics platform. All
1: right. Yeah. So no, I was building. Up, I was building out the data side of the logistics platform. So really understanding. Um, you know, we, we we had two million orders a day, sh- shipping two million packages a day. Like, but we wow. didn't really have a good sense of how the performance of that was and what we needed to do. Um, so my job was to help rationalize that.
0: Wow, cool, which is huge in the U.S. and and you've been traveling a lot. Um, you know,
1: I you were telling me you were which our biggest market's actually in Western Europe. So. Oh wow.
0: And yeah. you yeah, you were um you're I remember you were going to these places and expanding. Okay, can you tell us a bit about a bit more about, about that and your your personal experience as well?
1: Sure. So actually what's what's super interesting about this business is that um we don't actually need people on the ground to do what we need we do effectively um to, to be successful in a market. Um so so for, for people for more context, um I think what Wish does is um, our, our value proposition is we offer low price items, uh, low price um, um, unbranded goods, typically unbranded, right, um, to, to value conscious customers. So if you look at the average Wish um, uh, income distribution, it's actually quite a, a lot lower than, uh, say, like the Walmart or Amazon. Uh, uh, no, not Walmart, Amazon. Uh, or even they have like the we tend to um, attract a more value-conscious consumer. Um, so what what we could do here with Facebook ads and stuff is you know we can find customers around the world because Facebook has users in 200 um, plus countries. Um, if as long as we know there's logistics between uh, our key supply chains in China um, uh, and and these specific countries, then we can ship them. Uh, And the the third part of that is is making sure that there's the the right kind of payments available. So whether that's, you know, in Indonesia, that that would be like online banking or uh, potentially even e-wallets, because a lot of countries don't have credit card penetration, right? So uh, the credit card penetration in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, excluding Singapore, is generally under 5% for most countries. So, uh, you know, we, we need to find ways that we can be financially inclusive. Uh, when we are considering expanding to uh, uh, to countries. Um, and, and this isn't just for uh, emerging markets. There's also developed markets, for example, where you notice that if you turn on uh, online banking as an option, uh, for example, like we you, you get a lot more customers. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, a lot of interesting insights there in terms of understanding and internationalization being financially inclusive. Also language translation too. Yeah, so, but we don't need it necessarily need to be in the country to do any of this. Um, so it, it's quite um, it's quite amazing in terms of how uh, how we've managed to scale up this country this company um, to to other countries and stuff without actually a having a physical presence but b is being able to maintain a very small and highly productive workforce.
0: Cool. last two last questions for about Wish. first is yeah. the, the trade war. How is Wish positioning itself in terms of trade war with China? And second. Uh, what has Wish been doing to support the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S.?
1: All right, yeah, so I think uh, in terms of the trade war, um, obviously there's, there's things that, that's obviously out of our control. I think that's the matter between China and the United States government, so I can't really speak on that. But we were trying to do, and what, my, um, what I'm currently tasked to do with the companies to help our business find sellers uh, in, in different countries outside of China, um, so whether in the U.S. that is expanding our U.S. merchant base in Europe, that's expanding our, our sellers in, US, in Europe. Uh, eventually, we'll go to North Asia and Southeast Asia as additional sellers of demand, um, depending on what we do. But my, my specific goal and job right now, I'm tasked with finding ways that we can make it more attractive for sellers um, outside of China to, to join the platform. Um, so that, that's the, the, the first question you had and the second question was around black lives matter uh, I think what we' what we've done here is we're uh, from uh, you know like a lot of other uh, companies we're donating towards specific causes um, that support uh, this um, and especially social social justice initiatives uh, so we have a company match uh, we're donating and our, I think our CEO is also matching uh, these these initiatives so um, yeah, so it's 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 good. Our CEOs, our Peter, our CEOs is, is matching um, everyone's donations in the company.
0: Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it's cool to see Wish um, very active in that. It's an interesting time in the U.S. It's cool. To see yeah, for sure. Such a the uh, company such as Wish, like.
1: You know, I mean, obviously, we're a bigger company. We we would do we would do more, but you know, we're we're still a you know, uh, a venture backed, uh, non-public company that has big aspirations, but, you know, we can't go like, we can't be like Apple or Michael Jordan, like Michael Jordan gave like a hundred million dollars, right? Or something like that. Uh, We don't, we clearly don't have that kind of um, margins and and profitability to support that. But eventually that that would be something that that we would hope to be able to do.
0: But you don't need to, right? Because the people in the company are donating themselves, like,
1: like you and this. Sure. But, just like, but i mean uh, i don't think collectively we'll donate a hundred we're not going to donate michael jordan levels of money uh, right well, we, just, I, we don't have that I mean, to those kind to be of resources honest, like
0: i i i i love michael jordan but you know this is he, he has he been really active in like watching the last
1: dance you know and, and it's, no, no no but but you know did you know that you know recently he gave like a hundred million dollars right?
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah sure yeah so i mean what can you, like Like he's putting his buddy where his you know, mind is, right? I, I don't think like his views have obviously evolved like a lot of us and I don't think it's right to criticize or, or judge people based off of that. And I mean that for anything, right? Like I think, I think right now with cancel culture and all this things that's going on, where it's like, if you say something that's against someone else's view and, and whatnot, that you're shut up and, and told to be quiet. I think we can't, we can't be that judgmental against people, right? Unless they've committed a crime if they have an opinion and sure you don't agree with them, you shouldn't shut them up, right? You should try to engage with them in a productive way where you find common ground and have active discussions, not just be like, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore or whatever. So I, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think we can judge, and, and, I, and I don't think we can judge people exclusively based off of their past behaviors too, right? So uh, I think where you, what you do today, where your heart is today and where you put your time and money is really shows. Yeah.
0: Well Brent, um to close off, we share um, almost the same fashion, fashion for surfing, for, for for the for the love of surfing. Um when's the last time you surfed?
1: Uh two days ago. Oh my goodness. Where where which which, which break? Uh, um it's called Madewi, so it's further north of uh oh. north northwest Bali. How far is it from your
0: house in
1: Changgu? Like two hours drive. So it's not, not that close. Oh, cool.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, for those who don't know, Brandon's is an avid surfer. Um, follow his Instagram. You've, uh, he's been to, um, I don't want to spell, but I'll spill it. Anyway, he's been to Mantawai. Right, Brent?
1: Yeah, I'm All not right. a good surfer. I just like surfing.
0: Yeah, you, you are. You, you, you.
1: You're good. I have a lot of work to do. Yeah.
0: You have a Kelly Slater
1: uh, board. I have is- the haircut I don't, I, and the board. I don't necessarily, it so, doesn't necessarily mean I surf like Kelly Slater. <laughs> cool.
0: Hey, Ben. this has been awesome. Um, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience. It's been super inspiring and inspiring. And I'm sure other people will be inspired too.
1: Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Hopefully I don't, hopefully I don't take your podcast after this. <laughs>
0: Well, it's gonna go up from here with this. So,
1: where can people find you?
0: What, where, where's your um? How do you interact with social media? If people want to connect with you. Uh, just
1: add me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, my Instagram's private and stuff, so I, I try to try to keep a, you know, pretty private. Oh. Things pretty private unless, yeah. So, yeah, add me on LinkedIn. Uh, always happy to connect in terms of professional basis. And um, ways to help out there. All right, great. Thanks, Brad. We'll say bye. Cool. And bye. Bye.